We are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. You know, this Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students. America first. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. The racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobic. Welcome to We the Deplorables. I am your host, Sherry Wilson. This is a safe place for faith, family, and freedom. And we're going to continue our discussion on the Christian left, which is a very real threat uh, to the church, to the true Christ followers in this nation. And they, again, are defined as those who want to bring socialism uh, Marxism, whatever you want to say it, which socialism is communism in diapers. Um, they want they want to transform America into a socialist nation, and they believe the Bible supports that. They also redefine sin. Uh, you know, homosexuality is no longer a sin. It was just you know, backwoods writers of the New Testament and that culture of the time that caused them to put the things in the Bible that they put in, which is in complete um, opposition to the reality in First or Second Timothy, where it says all scripture is God-breathed. Now, I can say that some of the writers of the scriptures that wrote their thoughts down that have been recorded for us uh, had ideas that were not necessarily full or complete ideas. Uh, for example, in Ecclesiastes, it says there's nothing new under the sun, but God becoming man was definitely something new under the sun. So uh, not every single word in there is God's will or choice, but it is definitely a picture of Jesus Christ from front to back, and the fullness, perfect theology is found in Jesus. Another example is in the Old Testament, uh, a lot of the people of the Bible, including or uh, of the people that lived in that time and those that wrote the Bible, believe that God killed people. Well, he's good and he's full of life. There is no death in him. So how exactly does that work? Well, you have to deliver one over to the one who is death, uh, theft and destruction. And that is the enemy, according to John 10.10. So the enemy does the killing. And uh, so anyway, it's there's just lots of things that we take. Uh, you know, another one that we've talked about in a couple episodes back was, you know, the, the doctrine that God is in control when actually he's in charge. And uh, Psalm 115, I believe, verse 15, I could be mistaken, says that he gave the earth to us. Uh, so we're the ones that are responsible for what happens in the earth. Uh the Christian left believes that everybody's needs should be taken care of. There should be equal wage across all of the boards. Uh, well, in you know the book of Acts, they definitely supported and took care of financially the widows and the orphans, uh, but there were also prerequisites. You had to be a widow uh, in the truest sense of the word, meaning you could not uh, remarry, you could not work for a living, uh, orphan, no parents or family to take care of them whatsoever. And according to Paul and even the seven deacons in charge of distributing the uh, money that if you did not work, you did not eat. And uh, so we're going to continue uh, our discussion today. And our recommended reading is The Christian Left. And uh, I'm going to start with... Um, I might have uh, already read this part here, so let me go on down. So we're going to talk about wolves in sheep's clothing. 
And we need to be a, beware of wolves in sheep, sheep's clothing. And here's the deal. Here's the, the kicker. They look like sheep. And what they say and the, the views that they espouse seem good. They seem appealing. They seem like they're loving. And that's the danger because, you know, your action step, other than downloading my uh, Save America or Take Action Save America resource, it's in the show notes, your action step with these podcasts is to know the word, you know, to recognize when someone's taking the word of God and twisting it for their own agenda. Some in the Christian left are well-meaning Christians that have a huge heart of compassion, but others don't know Jesus any more than the devil, and they have infiltrated the people of God to destroy it from the inside out. And in a verse uh, or page 56 of the recommended reading, The Christian Left by Lucas Miles, he says, If you are a person of the Christian faith, one of the tenets of our faith is free will. One of the tenets of our democracy is that we have a separation of church and state, and under no circumstances are we supposed to be imposing our faith on other people. This is uh, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand during a 2019 press conference opposing the Georgia heartbeat bill. Gillibrand, like other members of the Christian left, cleverly uses the left's weaponized version of love to advance the left's agenda and create a world where Christianity is permanently quarantined within the four walls of the church and unable to oppose the moral failures of our nation. So she literally quoted scriptures, the ability to have a free will, as supporting murdering babies in the womb. And, you know, there are a lot of people that call themselves Christ followers that have no problem with abortion. And I would question whether you are truly born again. Because killing, shedding innocent blood, you know, if you buy into this whole, you know, thing, well, uh, they're not really a baby till they're born. Just do a little bit of some science research. It doesn't take much. Just look it up. But here's the thing. She's using scripture to push a narrative that is incorrect. And the Bible says, I believe it's Isaiah, says, Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Now, we're, I'm going to do an entire podcast on this myth of separation of church and state uh, probably after this uh, topic, because I'm really getting tired of even Christians uh, talking about separation of church and state and supporting the idea that the two cannot mingle. Briefly, the entire point of separation of church and state, which is a phrase that's not even in the Constitution, it was in a letter that Thomas Jefferson wrote to the Danbury Baptist, Danbury, Connecticut, when they were concerned that the First Amendment, which is freedom of religion and, and freedom to you know, worship God how you see fit, they were concerned that, that by that being in there, the government would one day think it had a right to dictate religious uh, policy and how we worship, et cetera, et cetera. And to the Baptists, they are like, you know, that is an inalienable right. That is from God. That is not from man. And so it really concerned them. So Thomas Jefferson, in a very short letter, explained that that was put in there to protect people in America from the government choosing a denomination and then making all other denominations illegal or persecuting those who were not of that denomination, which is what they experienced in England. So church was confined to denominationalism. And he said that by doing this, it's creating a wall of separation of church and state so that the state cannot impose or infringe upon the rights of people of God. It was never meant to separate the federal government from any religious observance like prayer, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to dig into this, and I'm hoping that more and more people will bring up uh, lawsuits that will take it to the Supreme Court because it was rightly... uh, upheld until, I believe, 1946, and then pretty much 1962, if I'm not mistaken, is when the myth of separation of church and state became a problem in this country, and they didn't even read the letter of Thomas Jefferson, nor give the context. They just took those eight words, and now they have been slowly pushing God out of every aspect of public life, and that was never 
the intent of the founding fathers. You know, they make the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence sound like only people that are paid experts can understand it. The founding fathers made the Constitution and our founding documents extremely simple and things that can be read in an hour so that all of the American citizens can understand what their rights are. So don't buy into that lie. Now, there's some words that are antiquated. There's some words that are big. Just go to dictionary.com and look them up like I do, and then you will understand your rights. And so I'm hoping some legal challenge will eventually come out because we have an incredible amount of precedent uh, in our uh, congressional records, et cetera, which, by the way, the very first Congress that was called uh, recorded everything. If you want to know what the Founding Fathers meant by certain things in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence, you can actually read it in their own words. And so um, with this idea that you know, we're going to use scripture to push left-wing agenda. That is the whole thing with the Christian left. As I've stated, I think in the very first uh, episode of this topic, that they even believe that they have a superior knowledge uh, to the Bible, that that's not the only thing they read anymore to get their ideas. And it's just a form of neo-Gnosticism. Gnosticism was something that Paul and the uh, apostles wrote letters to oppose. And uh, so we're just seeing it now in a new form. He uh, also talks about, you know, Herod and how Herod uh, loved John until John confronted him over marrying his brother's wife. And then all of a sudden, John is now a problem. So he said, concealed within the life and death of John the Baptist is a lesson for today. The gospel is celebrated until it's not. Mark's gospel reveals the tragic irony of John's death. Herod enjoyed listening to John. Herod took no issue with John's gospel until it addressed his own sin, his unlawful marriage to his brother's life. And so there's just lots and lots of examples. Nancy Pelosi all the time quotes scripture, and uh, she no more lives by the scripture again than the devil does. It is merely a political talking point, and I really wish that the Catholic Church would get a backbone and start excommunicating these politicians that run as Democrats, that run as Catholics, but believe in killing babies. I really wish they would take a strong stand on this and kick these people out of their churches and alert the American public as to why they are kicking them out of the churches, because a lot of people will vote for these people just because they're Catholic or just because they're Democrat and their family has been a Democrat for many, many years. So I want to tackle uh, a doctrine that I alluded to at the beginning of this podcast, and that is the question, is God in control or is he in charge? And one of the most destructive doctrines and quite frankly, a lazy doctrine is that God is in control. And this is going to tie into everything we're talking about, but I just want to take a moment to go over it because the thing with socialism is it always makes people feel like they're a victim of either people or circumstance. They're a victim of when they were born. They're a victim of the race they were born into. They're a victim of the financial status they were born into. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. If you're rich and white or well-to-do, then you need to apologize for being white and rich. If you're black and poor, then you're a victim of being black and poor. I mean, it goes on and on, this victimization of people, and you can't be a victim and you can't be powerful at the same time. So the idea that God is in control, and you hear it anytime anything happens that people want to give a lazy answer to, you know, God is in control. I know God is in control. Some people use it as a way to comfort themselves, but it's not a truth. And you should take no comfort in anything that is not a truth. The idea that God is in control is an incorrect idea of sovereignty. Sovereign means, quote, a person who has supreme power or authority. Supreme power or authority doesn't mean supreme control, but it does mean the sovereign can respond in power and authority as needed. So, for example, 
a king or a queen is sovereign. When his or her country is invaded, does that mean it happened with the approval of the monarch? Of course not. A sovereign is not in control of anyone, but the response of the sovereign, the response of the king or queen would be to warn the invader to leave their country and then engage with the enemy as a response to their refusal to leave their land. So if we take the Christian idea that God is in control, then the fact that the monarch's country was invaded must mean it was a king or queen's will, which is ludicrous. If something bad or even good for that matter happens, it's not evidence that God is in control. He's in charge, however, and we can seek him for the correct response for the situation, the dilemma that we are facing. So let me give you a couple of examples. If you receive a promotion at work, it's probably because you did a good job and deserved it. Now, we give God glory and we thank Him because He enables us to work. He enables us to gain wealth. He enables us to have promotion. We use wisdom and our gifting takes us before kings and kings promote. So the idea here is that God was not in control of your choices that led to you getting the promotion. However, his part may have been in causing that person to look at you and then look at your record, your good work, and choose you for that promotion. So it's almost like there's a partnership there on these good things. Now, let's say you pay off all your debt. That's wisdom. Okay? Now, the Bible does say, Again, God gives us the ability to gain wealth so that he can confirm his covenant in the earth. So he gives us the necessary tools to gain wealth, pay off debt, be a good worker, etc. In this, in these two examples, we are sovereigns cooperating with the sovereign. But we have a part to play. If we're lazy at work, if we refuse to help others, if we only do the bare minimum so we can check out and get home, guess what that means? You're not going to get a promotion. So you have to do what you need to do in order to have good things. Now, there are times when you've done all of the things that you know to do, the odds are against you, and you can cry out for his help and his acts, but most of life is not a mysterious God in control and we're passive recipients of good or bad. Now, let's take it to the negative. Can you seriously tell me God allowed or is in control when little children are raped, molested, abused, or murdered? Anybody for that matter. Of course not. God set up the family system as a means of protection for the weak, which is why the enemy is working overtime to break down the family unit. God also set up a justice system to punish the wicked which is why the enemy is working overtime in this country to destroy that as well. So those who know him can pray and respond as he directs them to such crimes, inviting him to come in with solutions. So it's Psalm 115:16 that says the heavens and the earth are the Lord's, but he's given the earth into the hands of the sons of men. The word given means he has assigned the earth to us. Adam and Eve handed their authority over to the serpent. Jesus came to make people into his image when they're born again, or that literally is born from above, and we are once again restored to our own sovereignty. Therefore, we can respond to good and bad according to his will. We can respond to negative situations according to his will and bring solutions. God always provides a solution before there's a problem. We just have to ask him what that is. But we also need to live our lives with wisdom because that's where success and prosperity are located. So the belief that God is in control and we are, quote, victims of his allowance of bad things has paved the way, almost a perfect road to socialist thought among his people. Because victims are needy, sovereigns are not. God is sovereign, and he has made us sovereign. 
So let me go back to this book, uh, um, The Christian Left. It says, A key trait of socialism is a profound opposition to personal liberty and scorn for individual reason, a complete contempt for the individual. In other words, within a socialist construct, not only does the state need to be needed, but it also needs individuals to be needy. There exists a spectrum of belief specifically in the degree by which Christians believe God enforces control over them that shapes our receptivity to being controlled by the state. On the left is a biblical view of God and Jesus where he is above all but has grand man dominion on the earth and as such man is responsible for his personal faith and uh, actions. There's also a distant view of God where he exists but he isn't overly accessible or relatable. There's a view that God or a God is at fault. Not only is he distant and unknowable, but he is responsible for our pain and suffering, as in he sees pain in the world but knows nothing, does nothing to alleviate it. Therefore, this is perhaps the angriest individual in the spectrum. And then lastly, a view that there is no God or gods, or if there is, he isn't knowable or involved in our lives. As such, leftist values helping the poor, alleviating poverty, cultivating peace are seen as the best way to govern one's life in this present realm, absent of any eternal hope. Well, the same ideas are in the right. It, Christian right. Conservatives, Republicans, I know a lot of them who think that uh, the same way as the Christian left. So what's interesting about this spectrum that's both on the left and the right is both are, um, I guess you would say, susceptible to succumbing to the pressure of state control. Now, for the left, this may seem more obvious, as many have replaced their hope in God because he's you know, at a perceived distance and their inability to know him with the closer, more tangible God of the state. But also the religious right tends to have a no personal interest uh, tends to have no personal interest in state control because they're happy to find their source in God. What they do desire, though, and oftentimes for the right reasons, is for others to accept their morality and ultimately to brace God. While this sounds like a proper Christian belief, and to some degree it is, it often attempt, leads to attempts to over-legislate morality, which of course requires a significant dependent on the state. So I wanted to tackle this doctrine to, number one, alert you to how insidious and subtle false doctrines can infiltrate the body of Christ and render her ineffective, but also to show you how it fits so perfectly with Marxism. Here's the deal. We are more than conquerors. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are priestly kings and sovereigns in Christ. We are interacting with God as one sovereign to another with a complete agreement that he alone is God and worthy of worship, but we are not beggars or victims so depend on God that we cannot make a single decision without him. That's not maturity. Instead, we live in a constant awareness of his presence and voice so we can lean on his understanding in all decisions. Our relationship with him, with uh, him is a mixture of dependence, his insight, his power, his authority, his will, and interdependence, which is cooperation between sovereigns to execute the will of heaven on earth. So any doctrine that turns you into a victim, makes you dependent on a system or cast of people, or that disempowers you is not of God. And most false doctrines are literally formed out of human reason and logic in spite and often in contradiction to the word. Back in the book, it says, um, the error of being controlled by or being dependent upon the state is the same worldview they need in order to make everyone as morally upright as they are. Uh, let's see. But for early, now I want to get into this new socialist thing. Uh, born in 1960, there, uh, 60, 1760, I'm sorry, there is little reason the world should have ever heard the name Claude Henri de Rivoy uh, de Saint Simon, <laughs> other known as Henry de Saint Simon. 
Saint Simon claimed to be a descendant of Charlemagne, who was the first um, French Christian king, and became a relatively well-known French social theorist. Notwithstanding a period in the, during the French Revolution when Saint Simon temporarily fell into wealth, most knew him for his irresponsible financial behaviors, which caused him to lean upon his friends for financial assistance during tough times and eventually led him to the brink of bankruptcy. After he gave way to an emotional breakdown, a suicide attempt with a pistol left him with only one eye. Theologically, the former French aristocrat Saint Simon attacked the church for focusing too much on eternal life and not enough on societal reforms. He denied salvation by grace and even criticized Martin Luther for overemphasizing scripture, all while propagandizing the Bible to appear to support his claim that salvation was only made available to those who would work the most zealously for the advancement of the well-being of the most numerous class. St. Simon and his followers after him attempted to reconcile Christianity with the radical views of social reform and developed the following basic premises of their new Christianity. Number one, all of Christianity can be summarized as be, behaving as brothers toward one another. Number two, the ultimate end of God is to, quote, ameliorate as promptly and as completely as possible the moral and physical existence of the most numerous class, in other words, the poor. Therefore, man must organize his society in the way that would be the most advantageous for the poor on whom St. Simon referred to as the greatest number of people. Does it sound like Socialism to you? Well, that's because it is. While utopian sounding in nature, St. Simon's work could hardly be called Christian, and it appears that St. Simon included every philosophy within his new Christianity except for Christianity itself. Absent from St. Simon's new Christianity were teachings on sin, the doctrine of heaven and hell, salvation by grace, repentance, or even the mention of the love of God. Okay. Sorry for the little interruption there. My cat decided to open the door where the news is very loud and to meow aggressively. Okay, so continuing, it says, but for early socialists like St. Simon, antithetical views on mainstream historical Christian doctrine didn't preclude them from using Christianity as a vehicle to help society arrive at, quote, a more noble and socially acceptable, quote, single religion as long as one common organization a.k.a. New Christianity, was purged of all presently existing heresies. Now, Charles Kingley is a progressivist, novelist, social reformer, and eventual co-founder of Christian socialism. And he's one of the first Christian leaders to endorse Darwinism. Not surprisingly, Kingsley, like many early leftists, mimicked his modern counterparts by rejecting Scripture as divinely inspired, instead claiming the Bible was a mere book to keep the poor in order. Now, why would you even call yourself a Christian if you don't even believe in the writings of the Bible? The, uh, he also, uh, echoing Marx uh, regarding the Bible, he said that it was merely an opium, opium dose for keeping beasts of burden patient while they're being overloaded. Perhaps you're wondering why the left would tolerate rather than reject all church doctrine or the institution of church altogether. While it's true that many on the left see the church as a roadblock to the leftist agenda, others view it, now hear this, as a near-perfect soil to plant their progressive credo and to wage war against the social and moral framework of our society. By suggesting that the progressivist agenda is hom homogenous with Christian wars, the left begins to parasitize all that's good within the church. The left then gladly uses the church's pre-established inroads into mainstream culture, including its energetic base of donors, established social programs, and strong organizational framework in order to usurp the influence of our Judeo-Christian society and convince ignorant Christians to adopt or at least approve of the left's immoral agenda. I propose that a Christian's receptivity to leftism comes not only from progressive propaganda itself, but also arises from commonly held Christian doctrines of sovereignty, the Christian view of poverty, and the false but subtle doctrine of the innocence of man that have believers susceptible to deception and ultimately have caused them to ignorantly drift towards socialism. Now, I just want to pause here 
because um, again, many preach that Jesus was a socialist. They took from the rich to care for the poor. But again, the giving to the poor was a voluntary, voluntary and self-imposed choice. Socialism will always be force. The people have no state. say the state is the only one that does. And we'll get into a little bit of the um, innocence doctrine that he alludes to. So continuing, he talks about, uh, excuse me, about Puritans, the ones that initially founded America. The Puritans were English Reformed Protestants. They were made of pilgrims, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and, and Puritans of various forms who believed that the Church of England was too similar to the Roman Catholic Church and should eliminate ceremonies and practices not rooted in the Bible. They believed to varying degrees that the Protestant Reformation had not done enough to reform the church. This disagreement led to their eventual separation from the Church of England in hopes of reforming their opposing brothers by demonstrating their more pious form of Christianity elsewhere and without interference. As a result, this group later became known as Reformed Protestants and additionally known as Calvinists since they held to John Calvin's five points theology. Although many of the puritanical doctrines attenuated uh, from American Christian over time as the nation drifted away from the influence of the Church of England, what remained was widespread acceptance of Calvinism, especially in regard to the doctrine of unconditional election or sovereignty. According to Calvin and Reformed doctrine, God saves people by sovereign choice without regard to one's personal merit or free will, otherwise known as unconditional election. Now, what this did is it created what's called salvation anxiety because no one could for sure know if one was elected and you had to be elected in order to be saved. So having little to no evidence of the proof of their salvation, many Reformed Christians turned to good works in an effort to demonstrate their faith as Calvin taught that only those who are in Christ were capable of performing good works. Now, Calvinism is a false doctrine. Here's the deal. God wills that all be saved. There's two words for wills uh, for will in the Bible, and I might have gone over this in a previous one, or this might be later in my notes, and then I've already gone, gone over this. But uh, it's, uh, gosh, let's see, bulos and theulos, I think, are the Greek words. One is will that is set, like the coming of Jesus Christ as a man, uh, the end of the age, the Antichrist, all of those things, those are going to happen and nothing can stop them. Then there's the other word for will, which is a desire God has that more than likely is not going to happen, but because we know it's his will, we need to do everything in our capacity to make it happen. So for example, it is not God's will that any should perish. So it's implied that his will is that everyone be saved. Is that going to happen? No. But our job as Christians is to get as many in the kingdom of God as possible. And so though that type of will is his dream will, his desire. If he had his choice, every single person would be born again. And hell, which was originally designed for the devil and his angels, they would be the only ones there, not any human beings. But we know that's not going to happen. But we can make our job to make it as close as possible. Well, Calvinism teaches the, the exact opposite, that God's will is going to happen no matter what, including who gets saved and who doesn't get saved. And so you're, you can only be saved if God chooses you to be saved. Now, this good works um, led to some of the early ideas of socialism. And so by 1901, the ideologies of the Socialist Party of America were finding a home among Reformed Christian pastors. The Democrat Socialists of America actually pay, home, pay homage or homage to this union, saying, quote, there's a long tradition of religious socialism in the United States that has been ignored or forgotten. With its emphasis on social justice, wealth redistribution, and other welfare programs, socialism provided the perfect opportunity for Reformed Christians to participate in a political system through which they can now prove their faith and therefore their election. Now, 
It'd be unfair to say that all early American socialists were reformed. Many notable ministers, George D. Haran, and Presbyterian minister turned socialist, former U.S. presidential candidate Norman Thomas, championed the collective idea of the social, the Democrat Socialists of America. Um, and this whole doctrine has now joined together, like I talked about before, the weird bedfellows of the Christian left with a socialist agenda of the state. Now, um, Later, Martin Luther King Jr., um, now he was a social gospel reformer and American minister, wrote a doctoral paper at Boston University, and he said, it will be remembered that both Luther and Calvin placed a great deal of emphasis on the sovereignty of God, but there is always a danger that an undue emphasis on the sovereignty of God will lose sight of the divine love. God is first and foremost an all-loving Father, and any theology which fails to recognize this and attempt to maintain the sovereignty of God is betraying everything that is best in the Christian uh, uh, tradition. So God, as a loving Father, again, will not be in control of evil things. That's not how that works. So at this point in American history, the belief in God's sovereignty was widely accepted other Christian leaders like King Jr. cautiously expressed their concern with the Western church's doctrine on election and its undue emphasis on God's sovereignty. Why? For the simple reason that if God is ultimately responsible for the actions that take place on planet Earth, then man is not. And that idea is what has deceived Christians into embracing the socialistic mindset of codependency uh, in uh, codependency on the state. According to God, any desire for man to rule over man was a rejection of God's rule, right? So again, it's if you choose the state to be your king instead of God, eventually you're going to cry out for relief from him. That's the thing. Now, as human nature, as is human nature, the people were unable to cope with the simplicity of freedom of being guided and cared for by God versus a king. So they soon demanded to be ruled. Now, hear this. The personal responsibility to walk in freedom was simply too much to bear. So if God is in control, then I am not. And if God maintains consummate control over all things, and his sovereignty guides his choice of who is or isn't elected, then who is to say that man or God doesn't also direct tornadoes, cancer cells, and even car accidents all for the sake of his glory as some Christian ministers contend. Now, this is the crux of the whole God is in control and why I call it a lazy doctrine. I want to read this sentence again. The personal responsibility required to walk in freedom was simply too much to bear. That's the crux. That's it. For the believer who truly understands the goodness of God coming to terms with the elves of this world is easy. God didn't cause a problem. We did. But God offers humankind a way out of its problem through the sacrifice of Jesus. Because he didn't spare his son. He gave him for us all. That Jesus is a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is the solution to the problem of sin and the problems of man before we even needed him. So where problems tend to arise for the believers when he begins to see God as unpredictable, angry, or mysterious, leaving the believer unsure of whether God can be trusted to act in his best in, uh, interest. In the church, this is found in denominationalism, codependency on church leaders, and in some cases, even codependency on God by creating a system to earn or force God to do what we want him to or to get him to do something that he's empowered us to do instead. He goes on to say, while I deeply love the church, much of what we know as Christian fellowship today is rooted in tribalism, religious control, and hero worship. Instead of teaching believers how to walk freely in the spirit, leaders fear that if they lose control of their people, then the church will gravitate towards sin. Therefore, there must be a spiritual 
dominant. When we don't reach certain outcomes, it's then easy to blame the system, the pastor, the domination, other people, or God without ever taking personal responsibility for poor results. Only those willing to embrace their true identity in Christ will have the strength to take 100% responsibility for their lives while simultaneously relying on the unlimited power that being connected to the Father brings. So I just wanted to read that because, again, the whole idea that God is in control of every single thing that happens is what has led us to this open door of the Christian left among Christ's followers to cause a lot of deception. God will never usurp our three will. God responds to our actions in the earth usually through his people. That's why we have to pray even though he knows what we need before we pray because when you pray in faith, you actually create a target for God's activity. You give him legal authority to intervene in the affairs of the earth. That's why he says to pray for your rulers and your leaders. Now, to finish up this idea of God and his sovereignty, there's actually, you know, Christian socialism in America. They seem like contradictory terms, but they're actually here. Bartel Ullman, professor of Marxist theory at New York University, once defined socialism as, quote, practical Christianity. He wrote this in a paper in 1965 for the People's National Party of Jamaica. Socialism, by contrast to free will, demands generosity through coercion by the state. In socialism, via the collective ownership of goods, wealth is redistributed among the masses by the state rather than being accumulated or curated by the individual. The early church's spirit of community was completely voluntary and self-imposed. Okay? Self-imposed. We did not need people telling us to give. We were moved in the early church by the Holy Spirit to give. So sovereign God has given man sovereignty. The Bible teaches very clearly that at the creation, he chose not to exert his power over us in order to control us. Rather, he placed his power within us, endowing us with the right to rule and cultivate planet Earth and to govern ourselves. Thus, the true meaning of sovereignty is about one's ability to govern oneself, not the use of power to control other people and things. And that really is the heart of God, if you think about it. He could have forced us to love him. He could have forced us to follow him, but he didn't. I mean, the very fact that God punishes unrighteousness proves that we have the ability to choose righteousness or unrighteousness. That, to me, is incredible. He's not a control freak. God is not a socialist. That is a false narrative. There exists a deeply related parallel between socialism and sovereignty. The same spirit behind socialism, unfavorable or preferential treatment of one over another, is present in any doctrine that claims God causes or allows circumstances in our lives in order to discipline people teach them a lesson, or bring glory to himself. I love this. Now, um, we're running out of time today, so I'm going to go ahead and stop here, and we'll get into some more of the Christian left and some of the the doctrines that uh, have made us vulnerable uh, to it. But one thing that I want to go over next week that I think is going to be really important is the idea that man is inherently good or generally good and has been made in his image. <clears throat> now, I'm going to prove by scripture. So before you think I'm teaching heresy, I'm going to show you by the scripture that man is no longer made in God's image, which is hence why we must be born again. And if you want a head start, just read Genesis 5.3. 
So we're going to get into all of that because that's another dangerous doctrine that has led to some of the problems in um, in the church that has made us vulnerable to uh, socialism. Um, but let me finish with a few other thoughts uh, from uh, pages 82 through 84. There's an, a theology called liberation theology. The basis of it, according to uh, Gustavo Guterres, who was a Peruvian priest and philosopher, and also he blended Christianity with Marxism, said uh, that it's the assumption that God has special treatment for the poor and, quote, demonstrates a special predilection toward those who have been excluded from the banquet of life. As such, proponents of liberation theology support the redistribution of wealth, political activism, and when necessary, social unrest. By claiming that God gives grace based upon someone's socioeconomic status or need, liberation theology wrongly ascribes higher levels of spirituality with greater depths of poverty. Now, you know, in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, while in chains, a prisoner, addressed masters and slaves, admonishing them that God is a master of them both, and there is no favoritism. So there is no favoritism between uh, toward the poor, toward those that uh, the world considers throwaways. The whole beauty of the gospel is that everyone can be great in the kingdom of God because Christ is in them and he in us is the expectation of glory. Now, God did have prescribed uh, uh, things in his law to care for the poor. But there are, again, uh, like prerequisites. To be considered poor, you had to have a mental or f- physical disability that prohibits you from working. Therefore, it was a responsibility of society to care for those. That wasn't a favoritism to the poor versus the wealthy. What it was is he knew that they would starve to death if they didn't have the kindness of strangers. So he wrote it in their law for them to do such things. So many of today's faith-based nonprofits rarely focus on gospel-centric or message-focused ministry. Instead, various social justice platforms take center stage advocating for needs like clean water, immigration assistance, disaster relief, hunger-feeding programs, racial reconciliation, microfinance, education and language skills. Now, all of these are wonderful. They're necessary programs, and they do create opportunities to share the gospel. But... To suggest that such things are the equivalent of Christian evangelism actually demonstrates a, quote, misalignment of priorities in faith-based nonprofits. We have to avoid what's called mission drift. In other words, while we're so focused on eradicating and alleviating human suffering, we can have a tendency to avoid the crux of the gospel, and that is you must be born again. You must believe that Jesus Christ is God. He came in the flesh. He was crucified for our sins. He was resurrected on the third day, and at this moment in time, he sits at the right hand of the Father. The danger is when believers drift away over time from the core principles of the gospel in favor of adopting more progressive and inclusive programs in the here and now at the expense of people's eternal salvation, we are now in mission drift. The founder of Boy Scouts, Robert Baden-Powell, for example, originally described scouting in 1917 as nothing less than applied Christianity. But were people getting born again? No! No. So this general sense of obligation and deservedness sets the stage for a temptation of the church, which is to view man as inherently innocent without sin and worthy of salvation apart from Christ. And we will dive into that, ladies and gentlemen, next week. Until then, God bless you and God bless America.